John chapter 16 this morning, verses 29 to 33. So this morning we're coming to the the last verses of this whole discourse that we started really back in chapter 13. So 13, 14, 15, and now the end of 16. We've been reveling, really, in these words of Jesus that are so rich, that are so deep, that, that feel like to us they have fathomless depths of meaning and beauty and yet and yet he calls us to understand them he calls us to read and to understand and to be encouraged and as we're going to see this morning he says these things i have said to you so that in me you might have peace Um, in this world you have tribulation but take courage i have overcome the world and so there's such a such a wonderful encouragement for us in this whole discourse um, but as here now we're going to see at the very end, there's a wonderful encouragement in these last few verses. And it comes about in a very unique way. So we saw last week that uh, throughout this whole discourse, the disciples have had many questions. Um, and, and part of the reason for their questions is their own problem, because... They have misguided expectations and wrong ideas. Um, and so that's on them. That's, that's their fault, we could say. But, but there's another, and I would say a bigger reason. There's a bigger reason for all their questions. And that's the fact that they, they can't fully understand, right, until after all these things have been fulfilled. So they're, they're struggling under a handicap. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And so that's why Jesus has been speaking to his disciples in figures of speech. Um, And again, figures of speech, he doesn't mean he's always talking metaphorically or something. That's just a phrase at this point referring to veiled language. Language where the meaning is not just sitting on the surface, it's it's hidden underneath. Um, Because, after all, he himself is still veiled in his fleshly weakness. So if Jesus is veiled... And he is God's eternal word that he speaks to us. Then Jesus' own words to us must be veiled as well uh, to the disciples. So remember that, that even when Jesus was talking in figures of speech, it's not like that was a, an, it's not like that was a second-rate language. It's not like that wasn't quite as accurate or quite as beautiful as when he was going to talk plainly. It was just as beautiful and just as accurate And just as perfect a revelation of the Father as there ever was. Right? Um, And yet for the disciples, the day had not yet come when Jesus would speak plainly. And when when he spoke plainly, then they could look back and say, Ah, that's what he meant when he was speaking in the figures of speech. Like the light would shine back on it. Now for us here, the day has come. That day has arrived 2,000 years ago. And so when Jesus says, listen now, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. I don't know about you, that, that has just blessed me this week. Just when I want to be reminded of the essence of the gospel and of everything I believe, I've just quoted those words to myself. And it's so easy to remember, right? I came I, I, I came, I went into, I'm leaving, I went back to. When you, when you just quote that verse and you think of all that that means. So when we hear those words, what, what do we hear? 
we hear encapsulated in those words the whole gospel. That's, that, that's everything as we view the gospel in the person of Jesus. So we hear in those words the all things, right? We know all things. And we hear the all things that we know in that, in that one short little verse. I came forth from the Father. I have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again. I'm going to the Father. Now Jesus said all this to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And we've been saying that a lot, but I mean, think, think about it. This is all happening in the evening. It's dark now, most certainly. And Jesus is going to pray his prayer in chapter 17. And then in chapter 18, he's going to be arrested, first thing, at the beginning of chapter 18. This is only moments away. And the disciples hear what Jesus says, and this is how the disciples respond to what Jesus just said. I came forth, I came into, I'm leaving, I'm going back to. The disciples respond like this. They said, behold, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now, what did Jesus just say, just seconds earlier? He said, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And then he says, on that day, you will ask in my name. Just a few verses before that, he said, in that day, you will not question me about anything. But the disciples are in a hurry. <laughs> they're, not, they're not content with this reality. And so are, are they suggesting then, when they say this, behold, now you're speaking plainly and are not using figures of speech, are they really saying that only a few seconds has passed? Like literally, I mean, you could probably count the seconds. And all of a sudden, that day and that hour has suddenly arrived, just like that. Is that what they're saying? No, I don't think they're saying that. I don't even know what they're saying, Right? They don't know fully what they're saying, but we do know this. It shows how much they don't and can't understand. See, Jesus says, I'm talking to you in veiled language. And the disciples respond, ah, but now you're talking plainly. Right? They think they can understand. That's the word in, in your handout. They think they can understand now, and therefore they can handle We can handle it, Jesus. We can handle plain speaking. Now. Now we can. After all, they say, you just did speak plainly. And when you spoke plainly, we got it. So so talk to us plainly all the time, and we'll get it. I promise. I promise we'll get it. That's basically what, what they're saying. But did they really get it? Like we know, like 2020, right? We can look back and say, ah, but you didn't get it. When Jesus said, and I'm, I'm not just doing this for review, I just want us to see the difference. So what did they say? When Jesus said, I came forth from the Father, do they see in this the deity of Jesus? His divine person, his divine authority. And what that means is, do they see, when Jesus says, I came forth from the Father, do they see that Jesus is himself the revelation of the Father? No, they don't get that yet. But they said, oh, you're talking plainly, we get it. No, they don't get that. Brothers and sisters, we get it. We do. We see. When Jesus said, 
I have come into the world. Well, that sounds so plain. That sounds so simple. But Jesus, there's wrapped up in that a whole world of meaning. Do they see in Jesus, in this Jesus, humbling of himself by becoming flesh, living among us, suffering and dying for us in our place? That's all contained, and I have come into the world. That's it. Do they see that he came to be the light of the world, the true life of the world? Okay, Jesus says next, I am leaving the world again. Oh, that's simple. I get that, right? The disciples say, you're talking plainly. Do they see then in this, how this fallen world, why is Jesus leaving the world? Because this world can no longer be the home of Jesus in his resurrection glory. This world is no longer fit to be the home of a resurrected Savior. It's not the domain for glory like that. Revealed, manifested. Do they understand Jesus' victory over the world because the world doesn't have any hold on Jesus? Why can, leave, why can Jesus leave the world? Because the world has no hold on him. He is victorious. Finally, when Jesus said, I am going to the Father... No, that's easy. That's plain. Disciples say, we get it. But do they see in this? Do they see in this? And brothers and sisters, we have the 2020, but still we have to ask ourselves, do we see in this? That he goes to the Father. Do we see in that the full acceptance and approval of Jesus' finished work on the cross? The Father's acceptance and approval. Do, when we see Jesus going back to the Father, do we understand that means that Jesus is our high priest interceding and advocating for us at the Father's right hand? Do we understand that he's sitting enthroned at the Father's right hand, ruling over us, ruling over this world we live in and ordering everything for his return and the consummation of his kingdom? See, most of this, the disciples couldn't see at all. And none of it could they understand at more than the most elementary level. And why is that? Why could they not understand? Well, because Jesus did not say these things plainly. He was still using figures of speech, right? It's because the days of fulfillment hadn't come to shed their light back on the figures of speech Jesus used. But how do the disciples respond? See, now we're, now we're set to see. Look, look what they say. Behold, now... You are speaking plainly. And we look at that now, after what we just did here, right? And we say, oh man, they think Jesus was talking plainly. Not even close. This is about as veiled as you can get. This is figures of speech. Like, it's hidden, totally. And that's what, that's what we see. But the disciples say, now you're speaking plainly. You are not using a figure of speech. And so they're confident that they do understand and that they can understand. Just trust us to understand, Jesus. Talk to us plainly. And so they go on to say in verse 30, Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Now, honestly, for me, when I've read that verse many times, it's, it's, it's confused me a bit. Um, I think, hopefully, 
rightly so now, it doesn't confuse me anymore. It makes perfect sense. Um, On the one hand, what do we have in that verse? What are the disciples doing? What do you think the disciples are doing? Well, it's a genuine confession of faith, number one. Okay, the disciples aren't being arrogant or cocky. It's easy, sometimes it's easy to either um, almost demonize people, because like, oh, they're such pathetic losers, or to overly saint people. And we should know by now that we're never quite so black and white, are we? And so the disciples, they have a genuine confession of faith. They're not being arrogant or cocky. Look, they, they don't say, we know all things, right? They say, we know that you know all things. The Samaritan woman at the well, you say, we might say, well, that's a strange thing to say, but actually it wasn't, because the Samaritan woman at the well said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, um, and that when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. So what are the disciples saying? They're saying, we know that you're the Messiah. Because we know that you know all things. That's what the Messiah would do. He would declare to us all things. The the Father's plan of salvation. The the deliverance that he was going to send into the world. So they're not so much thinking of omniscience. It's, It's not like they're saying, we know that you are omniscient and you know every single thing happening in the universe. They're really saying, we know that the Father has given you a message for us. And that, that you know the Father's saving purpose and plan. Think about it. They've spent three years with Jesus. They've been walking with him intimately for three years. And they're convinced now that when Jesus speaks of the Father, whenever he does, he speaks truly and faithfully. They just know that. Even if he talks in figures of speech, even if his language they don't get, even if there's lots of questions, at the end of the day, they believe he's speaking to them the truth. And there's a reality in which we can identify with that still today, right? Sometimes we pick up our Bibles and we read and we don't quite understand everything, but at the end of the day, we believe that, that it is speaking to us the truth. So we rest in that. The disciples are confessing their faith, even in the midst of all their questions. So they conclude, of course, that if someone were to speak like that, he must have come from God, obviously. Jesus said to the disciples just a moment ago, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and you have believed that I came forth from the Father. Now Jesus is going to die in just a few hours and that faith is going to be tested. Did they really believe? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the, the, sometimes the conflict in ourselves, but... What a beautiful, simple thing is faith. The disciples don't understand very much at all, but they do believe. They are convinced of this simple fact. This is what they're convinced of, that all that Jesus says to them is truth. And that therefore Jesus is their Messiah who has come from God. Now, not come from, not come from any God, but, but come from the God who created the world, Genesis 1. The God who revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who made a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. The God who promised salvation would come through a descendant of David. 
So their faith is in God and the promise of his salvation. And now that faith is being centered on Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. They believe. Simple faith. But yet we have a question. In the midst of this real and genuine faith, I ask, why suddenly do they feel compelled to confess their faith now? Think about it. Remember, we're complex people. We're not generally just black and white, perfect monsters or perfect saints, right? Perfectly, perfectly full of unhindered faith and never doubting or always doubting and never believing. It's, it's just, we've got a lot of stuff going on inside us. This is what Jesus sees here in the disciples. We're going to see this now. Why are the disciples confessing their faith now at this moment? Because this is whenever I got to this verse, I'm always like, where did that come from? Why are you doing this now? What, what, where did that, what's the point? Well, it's just this. They're afraid they've been letting Jesus down with all their questions. That's why they say in verse 29, Behold, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Why do you think they point that out to Jesus? Not only because they want him to talk plainly to them all the time, as they think, but they want Jesus to know that, yeah, that all, their, all of our questions are only the result of your figures of speech. That's why we're asking all these questions. If you would just speak plainly now, as you just did, they think, then we wouldn't have all these questions, and then you would know just how supportive and loyal we are. You, you would know that we're there for you. But see, here we are asking you all these questions, and it's like, you know, the night before the crucifixion, I think the disciples must have had a sense that Jesus, there's a heaviness in Jesus' spirits as this time approaches, and, and yet they feel like they're not able, perhaps, to be there for him as they constantly ask questions and, and show they have no understanding. The disciples' questions are making the disciples uncomfortable. Just a minute ago, they were saying to one another, what is this he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. I'm putting a bit of the frustration that I think I hear in those words into my tone of voice. And then we read in verse 19, Jesus knew that they were wishing to question him. And he said to them, but, but not, apparently not brave enough to, he's right there. He said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? You hear the rebuke in Jesus' words? It's a gentle rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke. Here's the question. Why are the disciples deliberating among themselves about something they don't understand when Jesus is walking right there with them? Why do you think? Why are they not asking now? Why have they shut up, as it were? Why have they suddenly said, we dare not ask another question? Is it because they don't want to come across as dull and dense Is it because they're afraid of more figures of speech? Is it because they want Jesus to know that he can count on them? But they feel that 
by asking more questions, it's going to send the opposite message. He can't count on us. And probably the answer is all, the, all of the above, all together. And so as a result, what do we see? That in the midst of the disciples' genuine faith, there is a subtle self-confidence that's still working in them. And it's that self-confidence in them that explains why Jesus' figures of speech are so frustrating to them. Right? They think that if Jesus would talk plainly now, they wouldn't have all these questions. They think if Jesus would talk plainly now, he would feel just how supportive and loyal they are. And so what they really want is for Jesus to let them be there for him. Jesus, let us be there for you. That's why they assure Jesus. You can hear them assuring Jesus, right? In verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. And, we, and, and that you have no need for anyone to question you. Who's been asking all the questions? And so, and when they say this, this is at one and the same time an apology for their questions. We know that you don't need anyone to question you. I'm sorry for asking you all these questions. But at the same time, it's also a request. And Jesus, if you would talk to us plainly, we wouldn't have all these questions. It's also a request then that Jesus would, in your handout, trust them. We know you don't need all our questions to provoke you to further reflection. Like, we don't, you don't need us to question you to make you think more deeply about something you hadn't thought about before. We know you don't need all our questions to show up something you still need to learn or that you'd never thought about. That's not why we're asking you these questions. So won't you just trust us with plain speaking? We know that you already know all things. By this we believe you came from God. What, what is in those words? There's a genuine confession of faith. A genuine confession of faith. And yet, in the very midst of that confession, is a naive, misguided self-confidence. You can trust us. You can depend on us. You can count on us. Now here's the thing. It's in their love for Jesus. This is not a counterfeit love. They love Jesus. And so it's in their love for Jesus that they want Jesus to know this. So we come to verse 31. And Jesus, as he always does, being the spiritual surgeon that he is, Um, goes right to the heart of the matter. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Jesus knows our hearts, doesn't he? And he knows our hearts far better than we know our own hearts. So on the one hand, Jesus knows the disciples do believe. It's interesting. Jesus just told them, You believe. And now he's saying, Do you believe? (laughs) It's not like, oh, I was wrong a second ago. But he's, he's, he's probing. He's not questioning the genuineness of their confession of faith. What he is questioning is this naive, this misguided 
self-confidence within the confession of faith. Have you really believed on the strength of your own convictions? Convictions you've come to all on your own? Do you really understand? Could you even understand if I did speak plainly now? Will you really be there for me? Can I really trust you and depend on you and count on you? And here is maybe the most important thing. Even if Jesus could count on the disciples, is it really their support that Jesus needs? And that he will need, especially in this approaching darkest hour of his life, We know that Jesus took the disciples to the garden with him, right? And then he took Peter and John and and he took them aside because they were the inner circle. And I'm sure there was some level of the human Jesus um, drawing support, would have, from those who were with him. But, But ultimately, what did Jesus kept saying to them? Pray with me. It wasn't all for his own sake. but And also pray that you do not enter into temptation, right? So... I don't know that Jesus was so much as we kind of picture, oh, the disciples really let Jesus down. Jesus needed them, and they weren't there for them for him when he needed them. No, in that moment when Jesus went to the cross, who did he need? He needed the Father. In that work of accomplishing your salvation, and, brothers and sisters, the salvation of those very disciples in the garden with him, who did he need with him? Well, we'll, we'll see that in a moment. So the question is, is it the disciples he even needs? in the approaching darkest hour of his life. So Jesus continues in verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has now come for you to be scattered. See, Jesus knew what they were all doing. He knew that they wanted him to trust them. He knew this self-confidence. He knew these things. And so he says, the hour has now come for you to be scattered. Each to his own place and to leave me alone. And yet, he says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. You see, in this great work of salvation, the disciples can be of no help to Jesus. It is only Jesus and the Father through the Spirit accomplishing our salvation. Jesus is not accusing the disciples. Again, we can read this and we can, we can put into it all sorts of things. It sounds like an accusation. Behold, you're about to be a bunch of losers, right? A bunch of failures. You're going to leave me and, and be scattered. Shame on you, right? Don't read it like this. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not accusing the disciples. He's not even rebuking them here. Neither is Jesus warning them and trying to help them avoid being scattered. Like, I'm going to tell you this so that maybe you can change it. And and, and I'm exhorting you, don't be scattered. No, what's he doing? He's just telling them the way things are about to be. Fact, done. The way things in your handout must be. Because what happens when the shepherd is struck down? What happens to the sheep? They're scattered. That's just what happens. Leaving aside any failures the disciples may have had, that's not really the point here. The point is just that the disciples are just disciples. They're just men, weak, frail. For that matter, you know, the disciples the disciples won't be there for Jesus, like they've been trying to want him to 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 be assured of. For that matter, they can't be there 
for Jesus. So in just a little while, that very night, they're all going to be scattered, leaving him alone. And then it will be clear just how much they didn't and couldn't understand. But then, after all, it's not the disciples Jesus needs. You see, I think that's the bigger question, the bigger point that Jesus wants the disciples to know. It's not actually you I need. And that is a loving thing to communicate to them, as we'll see in a moment. He doesn't need them. He will not depend upon them in his darkest hour. Here's the question for us. In the saving work Jesus has come to accomplish, to save even those very disciples, what part can the disciples possibly play? Well, we say, well, they could die with Jesus. Well, that would be a, honestly, that would be a fruitless waste of life. Better to be scattered and live another day than to die now with Jesus. Not only that, but to walk, to walk with Jesus now, through his trial, through his beatings, through his crucifixion, Yes, that would have been wonderful, but it would require a faith and an understanding that will only be possible later. Now, denying Jesus, as Peter does, that's another matter. It would require a faith that will be possible only when all their questions have been taken away, but they're still full of questions because Jesus still talks in figures of speech, because Jesus himself is still veiled in his fleshly weakness. So here's the point. Jesus must go to the cross alone. Without any other human help or support. And so in just a little while, and here in John, we're going to come up to it very soon in chapter 18. When Judas comes to the garden with the Roman cohort and the officers and the chief priests from the Pharisees, Jesus is going to say to them, if you seek me, let these, let my disciples go their way. That's what Jesus said. Let them go their way. He's not saying let them go sin and let them go be failures. Right? Let them go their way. This is me. This is my hour. This is not their hour. It's as though he's saying, in the words of our text this morning, let these go, each to his own place. But even then, was Jesus really alone? You know, we, 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 there's great mysteries when Jesus cried out on the cross and he borrowed the words of the psalmist. You know, this psalm, Jesus wasn't the first person to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? The psalmist prayed that. And when the psalmist prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God really forsaken the psalmist? Had he really, like fully, ultimately? No. But but he had the the psalmist felt forsaken in the moment of his sufferings and, and, and trials, and he had not yet been delivered, right? So, so when Jesus prays, he prays it as a whole new level. But here's the thing. Even when Jesus cried out to God on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was there anyone listening? Yeah. Did, 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 did God hear him pray? 
Who was Jesus crying out to? Someone who Jesus knew still listened, still heard, and who was in some mysterious way still with him. So yes, there's a sense in which Jesus was forsaken of the Father, and yet at the same time he cried out to the Father as one who still heard, and one who was still mysteriously still with him. When Jesus accomplished our salvation, when Jesus accomplished the disciples' salvation, he did so alone. And that's not just because the disciples were failures. He did so alone because that's the way it had to be, because there was no part for the disciples to play, because there was nothing they could offer, because Jesus wasn't depending on them and didn't need them. He did so alone, and yet he wasn't alone, because the Father was with him. (laughs) So we come to the conclusion, not just of this section, but now we come to the conclusion of this whole upper room discourse in in this unbelievably beautiful verse. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I, not we, (laughs) I alone have overcome the world. Could there be any more comforting or encouraging words than these. So why does Jesus expose the disciples' inadequacy and weakness? Why does he do that? Is he being mean? Is he trying to show up what, what failures they are? No, he does it so we can get to verse 33. The reason he exposes their weakness, inadequacies, and failures is so he can get to verse 33. And say what he says there. Because they need to be stripped completely of their self-confidence. Even this self-confidence that they're expressing in their confession of faith. Right? We know. We have believed. That's true. They have a simple faith. And yet even as they confess their faith, there's a self-confidence. And Jesus knows they need to be stripped of that. So they can learn what it truly means to put all their confidence in Jesus. Uh, That word confidence I think is a good word for us this morning because we're all, I think it's a great way for me to think. I'm I'm looking to put my confidence somewhere. We use faith, but here we use the word confidence. Jesus does this because they need to be disabused. Okay, They need to be rid of of this idea that Jesus is depending on them for anything. So they might learn what it truly means to depend wholly upon him. Even as Christians today, we can have this idea that Jesus is depending on us for something. And so in that, in that context, we let Jesus down. And there are ways we grieve the spirit, right? Right? We, we, we can be disobedient and we grieve the, the Spirit of God. But not, we, don't, we can never let Jesus down in this sense because Jesus is not looking to you or to me for anything. 
He never has, he never will. And if that's an offense to our pride, it's also the most liberating truth in the world. Jesus, what does Jesus call us to do? You could say, well, he doesn't look to me for anything. What? I'm free to do whatever I want? No. He looks to me, he calls me and us to depend wholly on him. See how it's just reversed. Jesus depends on you for nothing. He calls you to depend wholly on him. He calls us to put all our confidence in him. And why does he do this? So that in him we may have peace. There it is. So that even when we're confronted with our weakness and frailty and inadequacy in him and in his word and and his promise to us, we might have peace. So Jesus says, in the world, we'll have tribulation. In the world, I think his point is, you're going to be constantly, possibly shown up to be humans, right? Confronted with your helplessness and weakness. But it's precisely when you see this the clearest I mean, when you look back and you're like, man, I was scattered that night. I didn't understand. I thought I did, and I didn't. Right? I had a self-confidence that was totally misplaced. And you look back and you see that. That's all right. When you see that, you know what? That's going to enable you to look wholly to me and not at all to yourself. Stop with yourself. Stop thinking you've got anything. And look to me alone. Take courage. I, in your handout, alone have overcome the world. He looks to us for nothing. We look to him for everything. He finds in us nothing, but we find in him everything. When the disciples understand this, well, that's when all their questions will have been answered. That's when they'll ask the Father in Jesus' name and in full dependence only on him they'll bear much fruit. So we can ask ourselves and this is not necessarily a simple yes or no answer, is it? But we ask, have we been just stripped completely of all our self-confidence? Self-examination is in order here, certainly. Do we even embrace the daily reminders of our own weakness and frailty and inadequacy in this world? Where do we feel it more than in this world, right? So that in him, who has overcome the world alone, we might have peace. And so that in him, who has in your handout given to us his word and given to us his promise, which we've just been seeing over the last many weeks, right? we might bring forth much fruit. I wonder if we've made the Apostle Paul's words our own. So can we say this ourselves together? Um, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 
Philippians chapter 4. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And that might sound like something the disciples might have said at some level, even before the cross. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then he goes on to say what the disciples necessarily have not yet learned to say fully. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And finally, remember Jesus' words to Paul and then Paul's response. Jesus, he, Paul says, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul responds, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Think about it. That's not easily said, I wouldn't think. I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Most gladly, therefore, let us boast about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we find ourselves so often like the disciples, sometimes full of self-confidence, sometimes, sometimes not even aware that it's showing up, even, even in the midst of our expressions of faith, that it, it, it's so hidden, so disguised, that, that, we think, that we think you look to us for something that you depend on us for something, that in some way, therefore, in this light, we can let you down. And, and in fact, you call us to look to you for everything, to depend wholly on you and put all our confidence in you. Let us not turn that around, Lord. Teach us and show us the ways that we do and have. And we thank you, Lord, that that even as we confess our failures in these ways and our self-confidence, yet at the same time, we do see clearly what the disciples couldn't see. And that is that you accomplished our salvation without any help from us. And that when you did it, you did it, you did it alone. And yet not alone. Because the Father was with you. So we thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit. That this work in which we had no part and could have no part, in which we, like the disciples, would have necessarily been scattered like sheep whose shepherd has been struck down. We thank you that this salvation which you accomplish without any help from us is so lavishly and freely bestowed upon us. Just pray that as we see this, as we see what the disciples didn't yet see, that you would daily do the work of stripping us of our self-confidence. That we might look wholly to you and in In Jesus, we might have peace. That even as we're confronted daily with all the reasons we shouldn't be self-confident, that even, especially 
in those times, we take courage because it's then we're reminded most that Jesus has overcome the world. We thank you and praise you for the truth of your word, their, their power to, to change and sanctify us and to, to give us joy as we go home to our places to live our lives for your glory. But now we, we pray that as we sing, we will sing from our hearts. We prepare our hearts to come to your table. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.